Now, we had started doing something a couple of weeks ago, and then I got sick, and we sort of got off track. But if you'll remember, we uh, were going to pray for all of the churches in Ashland, especially during the month of Lent. And so, once again, as I um, say the name of the church, if you would just respond, we lift you up. All right? Ashland Church of God. Union Baptist Church. The Master's House. St. Anne's Catholic Church. St. James the Less Episcopal Church. First Baptist Church. St. Andrew, Andrew's Orthodox Church. Ashland Presbyterian Church. Ashland Christian Church. Shiloh Baptist Church. Duncan Memorial United Methodist Church. Guathme Baptist Church. Holy Cross Lutheran Church. Independence Christian Church. Greenwood Baptist Church, Winds Baptist Church, Faith, Hope, and Victory Chapel, New Day Ministries, New Bethesda Baptist Church, Beth Shalom Ministries, and Freedom Fellowship Church. Amen. Well, during Lent this season, we've been talking about Holy Communion. And so for the past couple of Sundays, I've been spending some time talking specifically about what we are to remember when we take communion, right? And uh, we talked about being um, intimately known by God as one of the things that we remember. And we talked about being deeply loved by God. Uh, We talked about the invitation of a relationship that he invites us to come into with him. And then uh, we also talked really at length about being the reason for the sacrifice. In other words, that that's really at the core of what we remember is the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. Um, And so while this idea of remembering is very much central to the focus that we should have when we receive Holy Communion, there's really something else that uh, we can also do that's sort of part of this process, and that is to uh, express thanksgiving to God, right? Now, it's interesting that, you know, this sacrament really was instituted by Jesus as a way to express gratitude. And the word Eucharist, which is used in the Catholic Church many times to represent communion, actually comes from the Greek word for thanks. And so Jesus himself, as he was instituting this meal, took the bread and took the cup and he gave thanks to his father for it. And so for us, as people living in this fallen world, when we come face to face with our own need for grace, and then we actually experience that grace in some way, the natural response from us should be one of thankfulness. It's kind of like Thanksgiving Day, you know, in a sense, it's sort of a yearly time that we set aside for just to kind of relax, to slow down a little bit, and, uh, and remember what we're grateful for. Well, in the same way, 
Holy Communion sort of can serve that same purpose for us within our Christian faith as a time that we can, you know, really meditate on and, and remember what we are thankful for, the things that we have to be thankful for. And um, so while I'm sure the things that, that we all have to be thankful for are many and varied, there are a couple of core things that I think are worth looking at uh, as far as something that we can be thankful for. So let's just say if you have nothing else that you, uh, you can think of, I'll give you a couple of suggestions today. And the first is one is that, that we have been made new, that Jesus has made us new. And the scripture that I've picked for this is from Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, now, th this is sort of an intriguing verse for a lot of people, and it's somewhat troubling because Paul is saying, I was crucified with Christ. Well, does that mean, as Paul's saying, hey, I actually died on a cross with Jesus? No. He's being somewhat um, metaphoric here. Now, there's a couple of ways that you can look at this verse. So let's look at those now. Um, he could have just been using this kind of as a figure of speech to refer to the effects of the death of Christ that every believer experiences in some way. So if you were to reword it with that thought in mind, it might say, I have been as good as crucified since the results of Christ's crucifixion count for me. Okay, so that's kind of the thought with that way of looking at this particular uh, phrase. Or he might have been referring to it in a sense uh, in which every believer is required to endure some kind of a similar experience of spiritual crucifixion of the desires of self. Okay, so the, the idea here is that when you come to follow Jesus, you put to death your own desires and your own wants and your own needs in order to take up the will of God and to live according to that and not necessarily everything that you might want or need uh, you know, as far as what you think is good for you. And so if you were to reword that with that thought in mind, it might sound like this. I have crucified my right to self-control in life in the same way that Christ was crucified physically. He gave up his right to physical life. I gave up my right to self-life. So second way of thinking it, uh, of, of looking at it, would sound something like that. Or, as a third option, it could be a literal crucifixion, but in a mystical sense. And so if the meaning is mystical, it might mean that Paul, and then by implication all believers, actually participated somehow in Christ's death and resurrection because of the mystical union that believers have with the Lord. So just another way of, of kind of thinking about that. Now, the point that I, I don't want anybody to miss, however, is this. <coughs> the point that he's making is that Jesus' death severed him from the requirements of the law. Right? That's what he was really trying to make sure we got across here, was that 
those requirements are no more. And then, if you kind of back up another verse with this, you can look at, uh, we'll look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. So with this idea of um, being crucified with Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17 then goes on to say, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What does it mean to be in Christ? That's one of those phrases that I think is, is hard to get your mind around sometimes. It's spread throughout scripture. Paul uses that a lot. And so we're like, okay, well, what? I'm not sure what that means. And so I would say this. I would say that, that to be in Christ means to be so united with Christ that all of the experiences of Christ become the Christian's own experiences. So, thus, his death for sin was our death. His resurrection was, in one sense, our resurrection. His ascension was our ascension. So that the believer, and again, in just one sense, is seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And so he died with Christ. Now that's what Paul is saying, and that's what he's saying about us. We died with Christ. Our old man, the old person, is dead. And this was arranged by God so that Christ rather than the old Paul, might live in him. So the old is gone, and the new has come. You have been made new. We forget that sometimes. You know? Sometimes an old habit will come back and, and, and kind of grab us, and, you know, we tend to start to slide back into that. And we lose sight of the fact that we really have been made as a new creation in Christ. And so the fact that we have been made new then leads to this idea that we can live differently. We don't have to live as we did. Romans 8, 14 through 17 tells us very clearly that we have been adopted as sons of God. All right? It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, I've talked about this, this whole concept of adoption before, but I feel like it bears repeating because, once again, it's one of those things that we're like, we hear it, we're good with it for a while, and then we kind of go about our business and it slips away. And so I really wanna, I want everybody to get this. 
and what is troubling about this to some people is that they, they hear this word adoption and you think, well, birth sounds like so much more appealing than adoption, right? That's kind of how we think about it in this culture in many cases, right? We would prefer to have uh, our children naturally. And then if that can't happen, then we consider adoption, all right? And so if that's sort of the way we're thinking about it in our culture, that where birth seems preferable, then it's like, well, then why does God use this whole concept of adoption? That seems backwards. Well, not really. And the answer, and, and again, this is in Paul's letter to the Romans, so you have to understand the context. He was writing to the Romans, the, the Roman Christians. And when, in the Roman culture, they recognized that when a baby was born, you kind of got what you got, whether you liked it or not, right? So that includes the sex of the child, whether they have birthmarks, whatever the case may be, right? But according to Roman law, if you didn't like the child, it could be disavowed from the family. A naturally born baby could be disavowed from the family. However, people who were adopting a child knew exactly what they were getting. And so nobody adopted a child unless that specific child was wanted as a family member. So according to Roman law, an adopted child could never be disavowed. He or she was permanently added to the family. And so for many uh, of these early believers who, in particular those who were Roman citizens, using this word adoption was one of God's ways to let the church know that he chose the children brought into his family and they would never be taken from it. William M. Ramsey was a Roman historian and he wrote the following. The Roman Syrian law book actually lays down the principle that a man can never put away an adopted son and that he cannot put away a real son without good ground. It is remarkable that the adopted son should have a stronger position than the son by birth, yet it was so. Now there are also people who are kind of put off by Paul's language because he's, well, it's gender insensitive. It just says sons. Why does it say sons and daughters? Not very PC. This just wouldn't fly on college campuses. But you know what? It totally misses the point if you do that. It undermines his whole argument. And here's why. There was a woman uh, who was raised in a non-Western family and was from a very traditional culture. And her experience can shed some light on this. 
there was only one son in her family, and it was just generally understood that in her culture that he would receive most of the family's provisions and honor, right, the firstborn son. And in essence, that sort of a culture says, he's the son, you're just a girl. It's the way it was, and I feel safe in saying that's the way it still is in many cultures today. And so one day this young woman was studying this passage, probably in Romans, on adoption. And she suddenly realized all of a sudden that Paul was making this unbelievably revolutionary claim. Because she understood that Paul lived in a traditional culture just like she did. He was living in a place where women and daughters in particular were considered second class, if that. And so when Paul said out of his own tradition, out of his own culture, that we are all sons in Christ, what he is saying is that there are no second-class citizens in God's family. We're all considered as sons. And so when you give your life to Christ and you become a Christian, then you receive all of the benefits that a son would receive in a traditional culture. And, and it's important, I think, that we recognize that all of the beauty of God's subversive and revolutionary promise that raises each and every one of us to the highest honor by adopting us as sons. That's what should enable us to live differently because that's who we are. However, there is an impediment, I think, that causes most people to reject this idea or to at least not, not give it the, uh, the weight that they ought to. And it's this. It's the problem of what others think of us. And I think it's a problem for most people. I think it can be present in greater or lesser degrees. Some people are a little more sure of themselves and others are not sure of themselves at all. And they really don't understand who they are, especially who they are in God. And it's not a particularly healthy way to live if you're living that way because we end up basing all of our choices on what someone else is going to think of us. Right? I mean, it's the part of it's the old keeping up with the Joneses. The neighbors get a new car, so we've got to get a new car, and so on and so forth. So we're, we're making our choices not based on maybe what God really would have for us, but what the world says we should have or should need. And so true freedom only can occur when we know who we are. And the only one that we're concerned about who, what someone thinks of us is God. 
And so these scriptures, I hope, have shown you today that you're not, if you're a believer in Jesus, you're not the person that you used to be, okay? You have a new family, you have a new father, and you have a new father who loves you unconditionally. And so we need to embrace this identity as a beloved son and embrace the fact that he has made us new. So let me ask you a question. If God has made us new and if his opinion of us is the only one that we really need to be concerned about, we know what God thinks of us? Be quiet, Richard. (laughs) (laughs) Facebook, there we go. Who exactly does God think you are? And now that Richard's stolen my thunder, would it surprise you to know that he's already told us? What God thinks of you is sprinkled throughout the pages of his book. And here's some more good news. I have actually read his book. And if you haven't, or if you've missed some of these parts about what he thinks about you, I'm going to tell you. may sound familiar to a couple of you. You are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. You are alive with Christ. You are free from the law of sin and death. You are far from oppression and fear does not come near you. You are born of God and the evil one does not touch you. You are holy and without blame before him in love. You are God's child, for you are born again of the incorruptible seed of the word of God, which lives and abides forever. You are God's workmanship, created in Christ unto good works. You are a new creature in Christ. You are a spirit being, alive to God. You are a believer, and the light of the gospel shines in your mind. You are a doer of the word and blessed in your actions. You are a joint heir with Christ. You are more than a conqueror through him who loves you. You are an overcomer by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. You are a partaker of his divine nature. You are an ambassador for Christ. You are part of a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a purchased people. You are the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the light of the world. You are his elect, full of mercy, kindness, humility, and patience. You are forgiven of all your sins and washed in his blood. You are delivered from the power of darkness and transferred into God's kingdom. You are redeemed from the curse of sin, sickness, and poverty. You are firmly rooted, built up, established in your faith, and overflowing with gratitude. You are healed by the stripes of Jesus. You are raised up with Christ and seated in heavenly places. 
you are greatly loved by God. You are strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. You are submitted to God and the devil flees from you because you resist him in the name of Jesus. You press on toward the goal to win the prize to which God in Christ Jesus is calling you upward. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That is who you are. Don't let anybody tell you any differently. And that is what you have to be thankful for when you come up to take communion this day.